0: Good morning/slash afternoon. Welcome to the Cal Reason Wise podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and sadly, I will not be joined by Dr. Nkemjiga Kalu today. In what has become a depressing pattern, today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Oduro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. Today's guest is Dr. Ross Anthony, Acting Head of the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. Dr. Anthony's research focuses on Chinese politics both domestically and in its relationship with Africa. While Dr. Anthony and the CCS really need no introduction, I had to give one anyway. Most of our listeners, you should know who Dr. Anthony is, and you should definitely know about the Center for Chinese Studies and their amazing output, whether it's commentary, whether it's the newsletter, whether it's articles, CCS, if you're interested in China Africa, is one of the the definitive places to go to. In any case, I wanted to bring Dr. Anthony on the pod to discuss his latest CCS commentary, China, South Africa, and the Dalai Lama, Costs and Benefits which goes over the latest diplomatic row regarding the Dalai Lama in South Africa. Dr. Anthony is uniquely qualified to take on this subject, as he also focuses on the role the economy plays in determining political relationships between China and Africa, recently fleshed out in a project focusing on the diplomacy of economic pragmatism and the triangular relationship between South Africa, China, and Taiwan, which we will not get into in this podcast, but hopefully in a future one. He holds a doctorate from the University of Cambridge funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and was previously a Mellon Foundation research fellow at the Center for Chinese Studies. Dr. Anthony, thank you for coming on the pod.
1: Thanks, Winslow.
0: All right, we're going to get right to it. What happened with the Dalai Lama's visa to South Africa?
1: Uh, Right, Uh, uh, we're not exactly sure. As I understood it, the um, Tibetan representative uh, office in Pretoria released a statement saying that uh, they had been contacted informally, saying that uh, uh, they 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 don't want the Dalai Lama here because uh, it it would interfere with their relationship with China. Uh, Then somebody from DIRCO, which is the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, issued a sort of counter statement saying that the visa uh, was in process, uh, and then they issued another statement saying that uh, the Dalai Lama's office had withdrawn the visa application. Uh, so as far as I know, that was the uh, uh, process of how it happened.
0: And I remember I was, I was sort of um, talking about this on, on Twitter. What's the distinction between the visa being cancelled and the visa being withdrawn.
1: You mean, you mean withdrawn from the, well, the, the...
0: The Tibetan side has withdrawn it. My apologies for lack of being clear.
1: Right. Well, I, in a way, it's a safe, a sort of face-saving uh, uh, dimension to the South African side if the visa is withdrawn by the applicant uh, because that way uh, they, they are not pushed to the point where they say, oh, well, we denied uh, the Dalai Lama visa. And actually, a, a similar thing happened in 2011 when he applied. Uh, he was not officially denied the visa. Uh, it uh, basically was un- under consideration. I think this went on uh, longer than the period uh, where, when he was supposed to arrive. And so again, it was sort of through a technicality, uh, uh, didn't um, uh, uh, materialise. So uh, I think uh, the difference is is basically one where you can really hold the South African government accountable on an absolute point that they denied the visa versus some sort of technical hitch or whatnot. But the pattern of this happening, uh, seemed, uh, irrespective of these technicalities, the pattern, uh, and uh, this is the third time now that, that he hasn't come uh, after applying, uh, and the perception of it is certainly that the South African government uh, is not allowing him to uh, come to South Africa and this is because of pressure from the People's Republic of China.
0: Could you briefly c- compare this South African visa gamesmanship to maybe how China has recently been treating foreign journalists and their visa issues?
1: I mean, I've read on Twitter a lot of the journalists I follow have uh, been complaining about the restrictions. And I'm aware of the greater uh, uh, problem of uh, big news corporations sort of weighing up the pros and cons of whether they want to do exposes on corrupt government officials and how this will affect their business in China uh, look I mean it's a it's a similar process in a different country I don't know how that uh, directly relates to the Dalai Lama other than uh, uh, what's and what's happening in South Africa uh, other than like uh, um, uh, uh basically, governments or states often find ways of preventing uh, people from doing things without having to tell them explicitly and publicly that you can't do this. Uh, and That's this called very, diplomacy. Very uh, yeah, it's the dark side of diplomacy, I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, well, that, that is terrific. Well, Dr. Anthony, could you talk a little about your piece and what compelled you to write it? How much of your own research went into it?
1: Well, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I, 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 I did my PhD in Xinjiang, uh, Uyghur autonomous region, which is next door to Tibet. And in many senses, it has similar problems to Tibet in the sense that there, uh, many of the local people there, particularly a Muslim ethnic group known as the Uyghurs, uh, have similar issues to what how the Tibetans do in the sense that they feel like the Chinese have uh, taken over uh, their lands and that they want autonomy and whatnot. So, uh, my, and I have traveled to Tibet before, you know, about 15 years ago. So, my interest in the Tibetan issue sort of is vis a vis Xinjiang and the similar problems there. Um, and of course, being based in South Africa and being the center for Chinese studies and putting out weekly commentaries, we thought. Well, we've got to say something on this issue uh, uh, because it's sort of all over the news, not not only locally uh, but also uh, 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 internationally. And so I got thinking on what sort of article I could write, which was not uh, the usual, you know. And I thought, well, well, let's let's look at it from a different angle in terms of South Africa uh, and their shifting foreign policy and uh, how uh, basically they uh, South Africa seems to have moved in its foreign policy towards a more sort of pragmatic developmental state model. And, le- and, and, and it's moved away from the earlier Mandela years, which was an incredibly idealistic uh, foreign policy in which South Africa was functioning as a sort of middleweight regional hegemon who would be actively promoting democracy and human rights in uh, other countries. And um, this, of course, was um, initiated by Mandela. And from Mbeki onwards into Zuma, you've seen a sort of shift away from that, uh, more to uh, an engagement, particularly with uh, other uh, countries in the developing South, the powerful ones, the sort of BRICS countries, and uh, putting aside the issues of human rights and democracy and these sorts of things, which fits into a larger sort of African discourse and Chinese discourse of that this is a Western-imposed um, uh, way of the view of looking at the world, and it's actually a duplicitous way of looking at the world because it's a way of uh, meddling in other countries' affairs and shifting more towards the kind of economic pragmatism which you see in countries like China, and uh, uh, putting these issues aside. And certainly, uh, 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 South Africa, being um, uh, the uh, uh, you know, China is the the biggest investor in South Africa at the moment, biggest trading partner rather uh, that That. Um, uh, if you look at it from the perspective of economic diplomacy, it's a no-brainer uh, in a cost-benefit analysis of, of who they should appease here. Uh, and then I went out to explore some of the do- domestic and international implications of turning down the Dalai Lama uh, versus um, alienating China.
0: That's a, a really, a really excellent explanation. Could you talk about the... What is the historical context of the Dalai Lama's relationship with South Africa and the African National Congress? How does that history affect the Dalai Lama's most recent visa cancellation?
1: Well, I mean, I, I don't think, there, there, I don't, there's not like a big history of solidarity between the ANC and the Tibetan governments in exile, not that I know. There may be some links, um, but really, uh, 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 I think... It, 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 the, the overlap, I think the most potent overlap uh, that you can find is this. It's the fact that the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela are probably uh, two of the biggest global figures in contemporary history. Uh, uh, I, I couldn't think of anyone else who could compete with him. Bono. Others, but, but, yeah, well, there we go. <laughs> uh, he may be a step lower on the, on the, on the ladder. Um, but... Um, uh, although I'm sure he thinks he's a step above. Anyway, but uh, uh, so, so uh, in terms of global perception, these are two icons of peace. Now, what's interesting, uh, another interesting overlap between Mandela and the Dalai Lama is that uh, in pre-Apartheid South Africa, I mean, I remember clearly being told at school and whatnot that Nelson Mandela was a terrorist and that Nelson Mandela uh, represented the ANC and this was this organization which was trying to crush our governments and whatnot. So we had this sort of indoctrination in the apartheid government that Nelson Mandela was evil, (laughs) believe it or not. And uh, 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 Outside of South Africa, of course, there was an inverse perception in the sense that the, the rest of the world pretty much unanimously saw Nelson Mandela as an icon of freedom uh, fighting this improbable fight against the racist apartheid government, and in China, it's a very similar situation in the sense that most countries outside of China, at least maybe not officially, but in terms of public perception, there's a, uh, and this is much to China's eye. Love the Dalai Lama, uh, you know. You have your celebrities promo- meeting him and promoting his books, and you know he comes across as a really sort of peaceful guy. But within China, it's the inverse. So if you speak, if you live in China and you speak to people in China, you know, they'll tell you that the Dalai Lama is a splitist and he wants to, uh, uh, he's like akin to a terrorist in the sense. And so in, in this sense, you see a very similar uh, uh, situation in the way that these two uh, uh, people are, were viewed domestically. Of course, South Africa went through a historical change uh, uh, where Nelson Mandela eventually came to lead, uh, where in, in, in China, of course, that uh, is not happening and uh, judging in the near future, it doesn't look like it's going to happen at all anytime soon. Um and 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 so, uh, you know when Mandela took power, he met with the Dalai Lama, uh, uh, and um, they obviously uh, are seen as these two sort of icons championing a struggle for freedom uh, using predominantly peaceful means. And I think that's a sort of organic relationship uh, th- that they had uh, on a, on a, in a global context, the Dalai Lama and Mandela. Um, as for sort of, uh, and of course, the ANC was also supposed to represent this idea of struggling for freedom, of struggling for democracy, of struggling for equal rights. And um, there, just at a broad ideological level, you could see the commonalities with, say, uh, the Tibetan government or with the Palestinians or with, you know, a- a- any other uh, group that was fighting some kind of perceived oppressor. Uh, and so I think that's the sort of organic relationship. but. Not not in the sense of like close political allies or anything like that., uh, the other thing also to mention uh, with Mandela, and kind of why I think the Chinese leadership were a bit ambivalent. Not only did he meet with the Dalai Lama, he also uh, was quite friendly with Taiwan and uh, tried to um, he also meet with uh, uh, met with Lee uh, um uh Li Donghui, Hui, sorry the, the former leader uh, president of Taiwan and actually wanted to have dual um, uh, 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 dual political recognition with Taiwan and China, because Taiwan held a political relationship with uh, South Africa until 1998. Mandela came into power for ni- in 1994. He didn't immediately switch political recognition to China. For four or five years, he tried to negotiate uh, a sort of situation where they could have both have uh, political recognition. So uh, both the, both these things, I think, uh, <laughs> did not impress China at all. It's quite interesting to note, and I don't know if this is uh, just uh, maybe some other problem. But uh, out of all the world leaders who came to Mandela's memorial, uh, Xi Jinping wasn't there. That
0: is something I noticed, but I didn't really, I didn't really put it in that context.
1: Um, yes. Well, we don't know. I mean, it it could be something else completely different. Yeah. But I did hear speculation about that. But I mean, it, it it's it again. It's it's it's. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't go to say. Oh well, that's why. Or, that's the reason. It's just a, It's just a, in context. It's a possibility. Perhaps.
0: And for for me, uh, the Mandela China connection. Did the, there's a wonderful wonderful song by the. Um, uh, the Hong Kong rock group Beyond. That it, it, if you've ever gone to karaoke and you ever listen to one of their songs, <laughs> you've you've heard this song, uh, but I, I I forgot the name. But I I always called it the Nelson Mandela song, and and likening Mandela's struggle with with people in China's. Um, it's a complicated, complicated story, but I, but thank you for, for pointing out that ambivalence that China had towards Mandela. Can you talk about, the? so this is the third time the Dalai Lama has been rejected essentially from going to South Africa because of visa issues. Can you talk about the, the first two times?
1: I'm not, uh, I, I'm a bit, uh, I, I wasn't actually living in the country at the time, but uh, from what I understand, one was for Desmond Tutu's birthday. Uh, and the other time I think was around about the World Cup, I think it was 2009, they were having some meeting of former Nobel laureates. Uh, on that, In that instance, uh, I think South Africa rejected him coming on the grounds that there was a large sort of uh, a global mega event happening in the country soon, and it didn't want to draw any political uh, attention to itself during that sensitive time. So I think the one was denied on those grounds, and, and the second one, I think, for Tutu's birthday, 2011, was rejected on uh, technical grounds. And,
0: and this, this latest one is also a, a gathering of Nobel laureates, so the, South Africa has got to stop having Nobel laureates come to their country.
1: <laughs> well, you'll, you'll probably have people like Tutu, who's a, a pretty um, determined man, will probably just invite him again and again. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe it'll just end now. Of course, the Chinese Communist Party in South Africa I mean rather the South African Communist Party issued a statement afterwards saying that they firmly support that the Dalai Lama never enters. I Africa.
0: was blown away by that. So um, yeah. I in, in my private correspondence I emailed uh, Professor Yunjung Park, you know, head of the Chinese mm. and Africa, African and mm. China Research Network and, and yeah. South Africa File, honorary South African. One, but I emailed mm. her that. Because that was the, uh, so in terms of like domestic, in terms of domestic South African politics, why, what is the role of the South African Communist Party and why would Uh, they support the Chinese Communists in this regard?
1: um, Well, the the South African Communist Party is a highly irrelevant party. Uh, Its job is pretty much to uh, 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 just support President Zuma. It has very few supporters. And yet it has a very strategic role in government in the sense that they are part of a tripartite alliance between the unions, it's the Communist Party, and the ANC which uh, which govern. Um, but the Communist Party, again, it, ha- it has very, very small constituency. So they really don't have much political clout, uh, and they tend to sort of champion Jacob Zuma and his decisions. However, uh, uh, my what I think happened is this. Um, Party-to-party relations is a very important way in which African governments and the Chinese government uh, establish relations, and, and party-to-party meetings uh, happen all the time uh, uh, between the Chinese Communist Party and various parties in Africa, and of course globally, uh, but these don't go on the radar in the way that state-to-state meetings go on the radar, So, uh, because it, you, you can just say, oh, well, it's our private party's business, we're meeting with a party from another country, and uh, and this is how we do it. So, you know, in the old days, the, the Chinese Communist, the central sort of uh, 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 committee of the, the, the Communist Party, their job was to reach out to other Communist parties in the world. Uh, but, uh, you know, as they took a market turn in the 1980s, they increasingly reached out to all sorts of parties in the world for more practical economic reasons. But the uh, South African Communist Party, Uh, It's not difficult to imagine. has an organic ideological relationship with the uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party. And uh, what I imagine, and I may be wrong here, again, with this kind of diplomacy stuff, it's all crystal ball gazing and guesswork, uh, is that um, the Chinese Communist Party and the South African Communist Party have a very cozy relationship. And I imagine that this was said uh, possibly as a way of Uh, cementing relations with the Chinese Communist Party, Uh, because you'll remember, uh, I think a day or two after the the visa cancellation, uh, Xinhua News uh, issued a statement uh, (laughs) in which one of its ministers thanked thanked the South African government for denying uh, uh, the Dalai Lama a visa. And I think this sort of dovetails nicely with the uh, South African Communist Party sort of uh, barking, echoing that uh, sentiment uh, domestically.
0: But the whole whole song and dance on part of the South African foreign ministry is that this wasn't a visa denial. So for China to go ahead and say this, and then the South African Communist Party to say this...
1: Yeah, it's almost like they blew the lid on the secret, you know? The, well, a, pub, a public secret, because, of course, everyone knows what, what's really going on. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought maybe that would be uh, slightly embarrassing to the South African side, who, if, if, if he just got off on a technicality, managed to save some face. Uh, but uh, Xinhua sort of trumped them there. So,
0: oh, man. <laughs> All right, um, what I'm going to do is this is going to be the point where we're going to um, cut this podcast into two, so I'm just gonna put a little outro and then and then we'll continue on with the next question. So right. um well that is it for part one of this podcast. Stay tuned for part two which will be uploaded quite soon. Alright, and now we're gonna get back into it. Okay. Dr. Anthony, part of what attracted me to your writing on this issue was that you detailed some of the racial politics behind the South African government's decision to deny the visa to the Dalai Lama and by the South African government I mean the ANC could you go into these racial politics in more detail and how they affect the ANC's relations with the Chinese Communist Party
1: mm. yeah I, I, it's I mean it is racial politics to a degree it's also class politics there's a certain Segments of South African society, mainly white, but of course it involves people from other uh, ethnic groups too. Increasingly, uh, what you would call the chattering classes, the literati, uh, people who run the media in this country, um, uh, they are generally very critical of what the ANC does. Uh, uh, um, uh, like the, uh, the newspapers, like the Mail and Guardian or the Business Day. You know, it's almost every day when you read these papers. They are uh, taking on the ANC for this reason or that reason or whatnot, uh, And I think from their perspective, this is just good old fashioned liberal style, British style journalism where you sort of attack people in power. Uh, that's the function of, of the media. That's what they do. So from their perspective, they're just sort of doing their job. Um, from the government's perspective, however, uh, they have got increasingly uh, titchy about uh, this kind of uh, uh, behavior and feel like the newspapers in South Africa are dominated by this white liberal class that are preventing transformation. And there's been calls to sort of try and trans... Could you
0: clarify transformation, please?
1: Yeah, so transformation in South Africa uh, is a word, a a sort of very powerful word, and what it signifies essentially is bringing in more previously disadvantaged uh, 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 ethnic groups uh, into predominantly uh, white-owned industries. Uh, so that's what transformation means. Uh, now, it's a very politically charged word because a lot, of, a lot of people who are in these industries see transformation as a sort of sneaky way of trying to control these things. So in the media, for instance, uh, pushing for transformation in the media from, from the ANC point of view, this is sort of uh, uh, making the New South Africa more equal, putting previously disadvantaged ethnic groups in positions where they can also influence the sort of uh, the public debate that's going on, whereas uh, on the other side of the fence, sort of the media owners and the journalists see this as an increasing threat to their freedom in the sense that the government wants to increasingly encroach. Uh, on what they think or feel is their right to uh, employ who they want, uh, uh, etc. So so sometimes there's this perception that transformation is used as a way of, of government extending its control into private industries. Um, and uh, so the, uh, the ANC has, they've, they've recently passed, a, it's going through Parliament, it's known as the Secrecy Bill. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of exactly what it entails now because they've changed it a lot. But but it, it basically part of it was that uh, if journalists blew whist- uh, were whistleblowers, that they could now go to jail if it was if they were holding sensitive information. So the media saw this as one example of encroaching on the freedom. The other was called the calls for a media tribunal. Uh, I don't know where they stand. This. So there's a sense that the the government is trying to control the media now. they there, and I think there's a lot of truth in this. Is that the majority of the media do not reflect the majority of the population uh, in the country uh, because uh, uh, they they cater to a politically educated class of people uh, who who and and, and 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 a large segment of the South African uh, population are, are rural. Uh, they live in agricultural areas, they ha- relatively speaking are un- undereducated. Uh, and so uh, the dominating newspapers don't see, uh, don't actually hold the views of what most South Africans think or feel. Uh, there are more tabloids coming out now which reflect these views, uh, like a newspaper called The uh, which is probably changing. And so my argument was that this 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 sort of uh, class of people, which sort of echo the sort of same class you would find in in Europe, the the, the who run the newspapers, the intellectual elites. Those kinds of people are really uh, very anti-the government rejecting the Dalai Lama. Uh, like most media in the world, they're in love with the mm-hmm. Dalai Lama. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and basically, they represent, uh, you can be labour under the illusion, I think, that the entire South African uh, uh, country feels that, that anger to the Dalai Lama. And certainly those who read newspapers and the ones who write them I would say a large portion of them do feel a great resentment. What I was saying was that the majority of people in South Africa, we actually don't know what they think or feel, and I would hasten to add they don't really care. Uh, and one of the reasons is is that uh, people uh, in in more rural contexts are probably not that clued up on international relations. There's some exceptions, like the Palestinian issue is particularly charged with the Cape Malay population in the Cape, but but generally I think there's a an ignorance towards international relations. And this just comes with the levels of education. And and so my argument was that while we may think that South Africa is very against the Dalai Lama, the truth is, is it represents that uh, relatively thin segments of the population who speak very loudly about it. Uh, and the ANC has probably uh, thought that, well, given that uh, um, if we if we delight, deny, deny the Dalai Lama visa in the cost- benefit analysis. Of course, we'll irritate these people, the the, the the sort of media elites, but we irritate them any every day anyway. <laughs> they are always going after us. So there's really not much else we can use there. Maybe at the level of international relations, there might be some implications because the, you know this is the kind of story that got picked up all across the world. Um, uh, but really, it, it's not going to change something like who, uh, 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 who will vote for the ANC in the next election? I imagine if this was England and the Labour Party firmly stood against the Dalai Lama coming, uh, it might have some impact on how people vote in the next election, or, or at least much more so than it would happen here. So I think that the ANC probably feel that really there's not much to lose in that sense, or, or not, uh, where, whereas, and this is what we never know. Is the question of what's China? What are the carrots and sticks which China is putting on the table here? Uh, if if South Africa said uh, yes to the Dalai Lama, what would happen? Well, we can see that when Obama has uh, visited the Dalai Lama and when England has visited uh, the Dalai Lama has visited England, met with heads of states, maybe not exactly formally, but uh, going around the back door of the White House or whatnot. Um, China gets irritated, puts them on the naughty step for six months, and then it's back to business as usual. Uh, So I imagine in the South African case, it would be the same. What it suggests is that, uh, at least from a South African government point of view, the relationship with China is so important that um, they don't want to risk even that. Uh, uh, And this suggests to me, uh, it's not so much about the Dalai Lama, it's more about just how intense... And how intertwined uh, the, the South African economy now is with China. Yeah.
0: Well, that is, I think, an excellent, excellent conclusion. Uh, and, I, and I think uh, a really fantastic point that you just made. Do you have anything you would like to add before we sign off?
1: On this issue, no, not really. I think I've uh, have done enough.
0: <laughs> you, you, you have done enough. What well, what about, what about talking about what the CCS is doing in terms okay. of bringing, you know, domestic African expertise on the China Africa issue?
1: Okay, so yeah, the Center for Chinese Studies, which um, I work at at Sillimosh University, we've been. We now have our 10year anniversary this year so we've been Yay. <laughs> thank you very much thank you we're very proud of, of the fact we've been going that long and uh, we publish all our material free of charge on our website which is I think uh, ccs.org, www.ccs.org, uh, and um, yeah it's uh, uh, it's we're very proud that it, uh, we've been managed we've been able to go this far and um, uh, just surprised at the kind of uh, uh, global feedback and attention we've got and the kinds of partners who've approached us to work with us has been phenomenal. Uh, if you think it's just sort of uh, six or seven of us sitting in a little corner office uh, at Stellenbosch University. So uh, uh, for our staff, and I mean, it's it's very it has been very difficult building up expertise on China, Africa, uh, within Africa. Uh, there are lots of people from Europe and America who are doing this and come and of course, there are more and more Africans doing it, uh, but remember, Africa has to start from a very low base here. We didn't have Chinese studies departments, which should be going for 100 or 200 years, as you would have in Europe or America. We've literally had to start from scratch and build it up. So we start from a very low base. And it's been growing, and it's just been really exciting to be working at a center where the whole field of China-Africa has become increasingly uh, relevant and important. So uh, we're very proud to be a part of this. And... Um, you know, our strategy for the future is to keep the research going, uh, to continue to be open to accepting all sorts of uh, submissions for our research reports, our journal article. We have a uh, journal which hopefully will be accredited at the end of the year, called African East Asian Affairs, uh, and our various research papers and reports and working papers and whatnot. Uh, we, you know, constantly encouraging people from all around the world who study this, because uh, it's a huge field. It covers everything from agriculture to politics to water to security. To, you know, we carry on encouraging people to submit stuff to the CCS uh, 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 to publish because it's really our, it's not just us, but all our external partners uh, have helped us grow over these years, and we thank you all for that. And uh, you know, for the future, we we feel that it's really now crucial to start building better Asia literacy uh, uh, on the continent. And uh, so the CCS will, in the next year or two, be starting an Asian Studies program uh, with a strong focus on China-Africa, but also teaching about Chinese domestic politics, uh, history and economics. Um, and uh, this is really for uh, the, our primary target is South Africans and more broadly Africans, to start developing a better China capacity, so that when people are going into business, going into government, uh, 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 wherever they go uh, to work, uh, they won't be dealing with China from uh, sort of uh, 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 terra incognita, they will now they will have a base, they'll have a knowledge of China, they will have visited China, because the program will then include an exchange. Uh, to China, they will have basic, at least basic Mandarin skills, and some, of course, are, are speaking much better Chinese. And and this is really to fill a, a huge gap in Africa. I mean, in Europe and America, like I say, you take it for granted. There's there's been expertise on China for a long time there, and uh, the fact that China is now the largest trading partner of of so many African countries, including South Africa, it's really crucial that we start building our own uh, uh, teaching expertise so that we start creating uh, uh, Africans that are much better equipped to deal with uh, China. I think, uh, and Asia more broadly, of course, because there are other partners coming in, the Koreans, the Japanese, Malaysians, and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, I think that uh, uh, this is something we probably should have been doing even five or ten years ago. Uh, uh, But there's a sense in Africa still, I think, that uh, China is a novelty. Yes, it's to be engaged, there's money and whatnot, but... At some point, it's going to go away or something. Uh, I don't think there's been a... No, don't tell our audience that. Tell
0: us. The, no, the China-Africa relationship gonna, is going to be not, here forever. It,
1: well, it's not going to happen. I mean, because glo- globally, there's been an economic shift east in the world. And I think there's an ideological or uh, an institutional lag uh, 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 between what's actually happening and the way that institutions uh, uh, re-equip themselves to deal with the new situation. And I think that this is happening in Africa, and it's slowly starting to change now, where uh, Africans are realizing, well, we've been equipped to deal with European issues. We're, you know, in our education systems, we learn about European history. We don't touch Chinese. It doesn't count, you know. We learn about European history. We learn about European modes of governance, European law. We speak European languages, even though we've had independence for 60 years. So there's not this sort of, what I'd say, hardware or the infrastructure to deal with Asia. And it's slowly starting to shift now um, within Africa. And there are different departments uh, in different universities in Africa that are starting to uh, develop Asian expertise. And our center is very excited and going to be happy to work with these different part- uh, partners in Africa so that uh, you know we can jointly uh, develop a, a better equipped um Uh, uh, African citizens to deal with uh, this global shift.
0: That is tremendous and I wish you the best of luck and I cannot wait, hopefully the next time we pod, that you you guys will will have uh, this Asian Studies Center up and running.
1: <laughs> I hope so. It'll, it'll it'll only kick off in twenty sixteen. So hopefully I'll speak to you before that. Right? Oh yeah, then, yeah. It's never.
0: Um, <laughs> but but yeah, and and you know, for a lot of our listeners, and and, and there there is a wide swath of um, of our African audience who who will comment, "Hey, why is Africa not not stepping up? Hey, why is Africa not?" Not taking the bull by the horns in the China-Africa relationship, and and I mean I would argue that that there at least African governments have a lot of agency, but it's also great to see centers for African research coming together and Mm -hmm. and grappling with the China-Africa relationship and doing something about it, and and that's why uh, all our listeners should keep their eyes on CCS, Uh, and and yeah, that's that's about it. All right, we are going to move on to recommendations. So, Dr. Anthony, do you have a recommendation for our audience?
1: Right. Um, I have two recommendations for you. One is, uh, while Stellenbosch has the disadvantage of not being exactly in the global center of Africa, i.e. Johannesburg, or uh, we're out in the middle of nowhere, uh, we're located in an amazingly beautiful area uh, just outside Cape Town. And uh, I would recommend uh, to anyone visiting Cape Town, to go and visit a beach called Odakrall. After working long, hard hours at the CCS on the weekdays, I go down to Odakrall, this beautiful, very small beach with big uh, uh, granite boulders on the Atlantic Ocean with big mountains coming out and very blue sea, a very cold sea, and I go and immerse myself in that cold sea uh, every uh, Sunday. Uh, And if any of you find yourself in Cape Town, uh, I recommend you go there too, or alternatively, give me a call. And we can go together, um, and uh, I also, <laughs> while we're recommending things, I also I'm reading a very fascinating book uh, called Global Crisis by Jeffrey Parker. Uh, it's a very thick book, and it is about a mini global ice age which happened in the 17th century, and the massive political disasters which it caused, from everywhere from China and Japan to Africa to South America to the United States. Uh, And what's fascinating about this book is that uh, if indeed we are living in a period of great climate change, we always think of it as a contemporary problem, but of course, it's happened all before already, and uh, reading this book in the 17th century just gives you a sense of the kinds of uh, environmental, economic, and political implications uh, which climate change will have on the planet today. And yet it's uh, it's a few hundred years in the past. The research is meticulous, uh, and you're just sort of trotting around the globe. And I think it's also particularly pertinent as China's global economy is growing uh, and the entire global market system has spread to other parts of the world. Uh, and the logic of global capitalism, of, of finding new markets, of, of, of infinite growth, uh, how this is really in the long term, not a sustainable way, I think, of uh, uh, cooperation amongst countries living on the planet. Uh, and it's a discussion we don't really have uh, that much. We like to bash Africa, I mean, China for its environmental destruction. But really, they're just embracing uh, the same kind of, a very similar kind of economic system, which we've been engaged in for a lot longer. And when more people are doing it on the planet... Uh, the issue of environmental consequences becomes that more cute. So, uh, yeah, 300 years in the past, not really about China, Africa, but in the bigger picture, I think it has lots of uh, relevance and implications. Yeah.
0: That, that is a, a, a really great set of recommendations. And as an American citizen, I am sometimes ashamed at the political discourse involving climate change. <laughs> so I'm not going to get into that. All right. Before we sign off, how do people find you on the interwebs? Do you have a website or a Twitter account that you would like to share with us?
1: Uh, yeah, we, if you go to our internet uh, website, it's uh, www.ccs.org. Uh, there you will find our... Um, uh, actually, forgive me for one second because I think that is the wrong uh, address. Let me just give you... Here's the correct address. Um If you write Center for Chinese Studies in, uh, you will find uh, links to our Twitter account and our uh, Facebook account where we – sorry, this is www.ccs.org.za. You can see I'm from a generation where we're not so uh, equipped uh, in dealing with internet issues. Uh, Yeah, and uh, there you can subscribe to our weekly mail. Uh, which tells you some of the latest news happening in China and China-Africa relations. You can read our weekly commentaries. And uh, keep an eye out. We've got a whole bunch of public new publications coming out within the next uh, two weeks or so covering uh, China-Africa legal relations, uh, covering um, uh, oil diplomacy, uh, covering agriculture, uh, uh, and more. So so uh, just, just keep your eyes peeled. I
0: cannot wait and... As our listeners, yeah, all our listeners should should definitely be aware of these these upcoming I don't know publications, think pieces, whatever they are, and click mm. on them furiously to give you guys some hit you know hits on. Uh, please, please do. <laughs> all right. Um, and uh, do you do you have your own Twitter handle?
1: I'm a voracious user of Twitter, but only in reading it. Uh, I don't tweet anything. I just make lots of friends. And use it as a news feed. So, uh, but uh, the CCS does have a, t- have a Twitter. Um, okay. uh, uh, as I start uh, developing uh, better PR skills with uh, the internet, I might start uh, getting bold enough to send out my own tweets. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I. I am... hope you'll make friends with me, Winslow.
0: Like... <laughs> I, I thought I followed you on Twitter already. Let me see.
1: I, I do. You. Okay. Okay. All right. All
0: right. Well, in in any case, thank you so much for that. Um, I myself can be found on cowries dot dot com and my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore um, R. I tweet about China Africa stuff. Although uh, the the China Africa Twitter space has grown tremendously, and between CCS, um, the Vits China Africa Reporting Project, uh, China Africa blog, and a host of other people like. I don't, I don't even know if there's anything I tweet that's particularly new or novel anymore. So we'll, 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 we'll see. But uh, that's, that's just me revealing my innermost thoughts, and I shouldn't have done that on this podcast. In any case, that is about it for today's episode. We'd like to thank Dr. A- Anthony for joining us this afternoon from Stellenbosch and uh, Sleepy Stellenbosch, but where the, be- the beaches are beautiful. We would also like to thank African Development Jobs, this podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, and iTunes. Yes, we have new uh, people we're working with. We are also teaming up with WTND Community Radio for Macomb, Illinois, to share our podcast. And thank you so much for, for letting us, uh, for syndicating our pod. We'd also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.